welcome today to worship at all of our locations. We're so glad that you've chosen to be in worship with other people today as we all look to the Lord and learn about him, who he is, and what he came to do. You know, when you think about it, Christmas season is all pretty predictable around the church, isn't it? I mean, boy, we've been through it so many times. We never miss a year, do we? Year after year, it rolls around. And we all know the story so well. Angelic announcements, uh, unexpected pregnancy, Joseph's perplexity, Caesar's tax, trip to Bethlehem, no room in the inn, born in a stable, placed in a manger, visits by shepherds and wise men. We all know the story. You could stand and tell it in my place. When you think about it, Christmas around the church is, it's all pretty predictable. But not this year. No, not this year. Oh, we're not going to ignore the traditional story at all. But what we're going to do this year, I'm going to invite you to step behind the curtain. And let's take a peek at Christmas from God's perspective. You see, we see it from the human perspective. We see all of the human, earthly elements of it. But the question I want to raise is, why Christmas in the first place? And who is Jesus, and what did he come to offer? I mean, why would the Lord leave the glories of heaven and move into our neighborhood? Why was that even needed? What was the purpose of it all? That's what I want us to look at this Christmas. It's a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view, but make no mistake, you're going to find that it's extremely personal and poignant. You see, here's my concern. Here's my concern. If we always just look at it from the human's perspective and we never step back behind the curtain and ask, why did this occur in the first place? What I'm concerned is that we'll go through the motions of Christmas without understanding the why. And you don't want to do that. In fact, can I just give you a personal challenge? Please never become a religious person. Will you, will you promise me you'll never do that? Promise me, friends, that you'll never, ever become a religious person. And by a religious person, I mean someone where Christmas has just become this little quaint tradition. We don't know what it's about. We don't know what it's for. All we know is we just do the same things every year. It's just all a rote habit we go through. Please don't ever become that person. Every year, when Christmas season rolls around, I challenge you to enter into it with joy and expectancy, with a sense of excitement. Why? Because you understand the why, the who, and the what of Christmas. And so that's what we're going to look at this year. And the place we're going is a very unlikely one. We usually go to Matthew 2 and Luke 2. These are the traditional Christmas story places. But this year, I'm going to look at Christmas from Colossians chapter 1. 
This is a wonderful little letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Colossae, and I think its message is incredibly relevant to Christmas. But before we dive in there in just a moment, if you have a Bible of your own, you can go ahead and open it there to Colossians 1. I want to give you just a little bit of the background of what was going on in Colossae so you can see why this Christmas message was relevant in the first place. There were two groups of people in Colossae who were kind of getting the message wrong in the first century. The first group I speak of were the Gnostics, the Gnostic group. Now, if you're a student of Christian history, or of the Bible, you probably want to know this. The Gnostics were the first great enemies, if you will, of Christianity. Gnosticism was the first great heresy that the church had to encounter and battle through. You say, well, what was it all about? The Gnostics believed that material things, matter, was inherently evil. And that only the spirit was good. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches that when God created the heavens and the earth, he declared it is good. But Gnostics said, no, material things are evil. Now, immediately you've got a problem with Christmas. Because Christmas teaches that God incarnated himself in human flesh. In other words, he became material. He never lost his divinity, but he became flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, as Charles Wesley wrote so long ago. God moved into our neighborhood, became one of us. But the Gnostics denied that. So you can see how that Gnosticism was such a serious heresy. I find it interesting. Today in our world, people typically don't struggle at all with the humanity of Jesus. They struggle with the divinity of Jesus. With the Gnostics, it was just the opposite. They said, oh, we struggle not at all with the spiritual side, the divinity of Christ. What we deny is that he ever became human. You might say that their approach was Jesus minus something equals salvation. And by the way, do you know there are many people in the capital district who would follow that approach? Jesus minus something will get you where you need to be. And in doing so, they're saying, we want to take away from the divinity of Jesus. He was a good guy, but God? Come on, no, be real. And so Jesus minus something equals salvation. That was kind of the Gnostic approach. And it was a real problem. But there was another group that I just want you to be aware of because I think they too are relevant to what we face today in our capital region. And that was what were called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were Jewish people who believed in Jesus, but they didn't want to take anything away. They wanted to add something. Review, the Gnostics, Jesus minus something equals salvation. The Judaizers said Jesus plus something equals salvation. And the thing they wanted to add was the law, the law. 
They thought that Paul and others were making far too big a deal of this thing called grace, this unmerited favor. No, they believed that what Jesus did was good and fine. We're glad he came, but we've got to put people under the law because it's all about your performance. You've got to keep these laws. You've got to keep this set of rules. And then when you take Jesus plus that, you can then be acceptable to God. Now, do I need to remind you, friends, there are many people in our capital region who would buy that formula, right? Jesus plus something. Jesus plus your good deeds, plus your performance, how you earn and add to what Jesus did, that will get you salvation. In fact, I've shown you this before, but I think it's so important. I want to show it to you again. I didn't want you to become a religious person, remember? Because religion spells do, D-O. Religion is all about what you can do through your own performance. Christianity spells done. That's very important to remember. It's all about what Jesus has already done for us. Paul writes in Titus, once we too were foolish, disobedient to God, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and the love of Jesus Christ appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What's Paul saying? It's not about what you add to it. You can't add a thing to it. Paul said, look, it's not about what you do, it's about what he's already done through his mercy, and he poured it out upon you. I want you to get that today. If you're here because it's Christmas season and you're a religious person, I've just given you the greatest treasure you could ever hear or receive. It's not about what you do. True Christianity is about what Jesus has already done for you and me through his death and resurrection. And friends, if you think Christmas is good news, let me hear, tell you, that's why it's good news. Because he has done for us what we never could have accomplished on our own. Two misguided groups in Colossae, a very wealthy and affluent city, but people still spiritually empty and searching the capital district is much the same way. There are hundreds of thousands of people, as far as I can tell in our region, who are on a journey and they're confused and they're wondering where to turn. Jesus Christ came so that we could have meaning and purpose, so that we could have salvation, so that we could be with God forever. So with that as a little bit of a foundation and what was going on in Colossae, the city to whom Paul wrote, I now want us to turn our attention to this first set of verses in Colossians 1. And for three weeks in a row, we're just going to look right into chapter 1 and just see what Christmas is all about. The why, the who, and the what. So today, we talk about the why. 
Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Here's what Paul writes. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I want to just highlight those three verses today. And there are three phrases, three ideas contained in those three verses that I believe give us a great answer to the why of Christmas, why Jesus came. So if you're taking notes, you may want to jump in. Let's explore this together. And if you are one of those people for whom Christmas has become a little bit too predictable, maybe it's just your default mode. Every year you just drag the Christmas tree out of the attic or go to a local place and buy another one, and you just go through the motions, but you never stop and ask, what's this all about anyway? Maybe today will be an aha moment for you. First of all, according to the Apostle Paul, Jesus came to qualify you and me. Now, here's where we get that from the text we just read. All these are right out of the text. It says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. You go, Pastor Rex, what in the world does that mean? Have you ever applied for a loan? Yeah, many of you have. You've applied for a loan. You know that a bank or lending institution wants to know a big question right up front, don't they, if you apply for a loan. They want to know, are you a wise risk for us to take, right? And so they check your financials. They check a little bit into your background and the reality of what's going on. They want to know, have you had a consistent income? What does that look like? They want to know if you're the kind of person who has paid his or her bills on time. What does the financial picture look like? And then they'll decide if you would be a wise risk. And here's what they'll say if they decide you are a wise risk. You know what they'll say? They will say you have been qualified. You have been qualified to receive this loan. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What does that mean? God qualified you even though you don't deserve it. He qualified me even though I don't deserve it. It's because of the grace of God. And according to Scripture, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. There's a big difference. And let me just stop there and get real personal for a moment. Is he calling you? Do you sense God drawing you? Do you sense that God, the Holy Spirit, even maybe in this very moment, as we've been talking about what Christianity is really about, do you sense his tug and his love and his grace just overwhelming you today? That's God at work in your life. 
And all I would say to you is if that's happening with you, if that kind of call is going on in your life, don't resist God's grace. Open your heart. Open your mind to his love. Yield your life to his truth. And allow him to forgive all your sin and adopt you into his family. And allow him to begin to change you from the inside out. You say, but pastor, this says we've been qualified for an inheritance. It's really interesting, isn't it? God says, I love you so much, Christmas is all about what I want to give you. I've got these riches, and I want you to inherit them. Let's say that on Monday, as you're opening your snail mail, and I'll tell you what you've gotten. You've gotten a bunch of catalogs from local department stores, right? And you're starting to get a smattering of Christmas cards from friends and family and coworkers. Yeah, they're all there. And then there's a circular, a flyer. There's some junk mail coming in. You don't know where that even got in there or where that came from or why it's there. And you begin to look through all this stuff. And finally, a letter really catches your eye. It's from an attorney's office. And so you eagerly open up this letter. And boy, your curiosity is piqued by now. And your eyes begin to pour over this letter, and it says that you've been invited to the reading of a will on Monday, December the 19th. It seems that a distant relative of yours has passed away, and you have been named in the will. You stand to receive an inheritance, and the letter says, please be there at 1 o'clock for the reading of the will. You will be receiving something that has been willed to you. Question, are you going to be there? You will move heaven <laughs> and earth to be at that reading. Friend, you know it's true. You'll take a sick day. You'll do whatever you need to do. You're going to be at the reading of that will. And depending on what it is, and that inheritance that you're going to receive, it could actually change your life. You could never be the same. But why did you get invited to that? It's not because of anything you've done. You didn't accomplish that. It's simply because of the generosity of the one who has willingly chosen to share with you. Jesus came to earth to qualify you and make you an heir to his kingdom. He wants to, you to inherit the riches of his kingdom. What is that? It involves heaven, sure enough, but it also involves the abundant life right down here. And friends, I want to tell you, that's something you don't want to miss and if you don't understand that part of Christmas, that that's the why of Jesus coming, Christmas sadly, sadly, may be for you just a quaint little holiday where you just kind of go along like a, like a clone with everybody else, not really knowing the meaning behind it all. But there's a second reason that this little text gives us about the why for Jesus coming at Christmas. Verse 13, if we can look at it one more time, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. 
So secondly, I want you to see that Jesus came to rescue you and me. Rescue us from what, you say? Well, again, I'm taking it all right out of the Bible. I don't want to make anything up here. According to this, Holy Scripture, it says he came to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. What a mysterious phrase that is. Whoa, did, did you catch that phrase? The dominion of darkness. Wow. That sounds like something you'd make a action movie out of or a mystery that whoa what is that the dominion of darkness do you know something the bible describes this world as a place of spiritual darkness where spiritual darkness reigns as jesus said at one time in fact it describes an enemy called satan who is the prince of darkness isn't that interesting so while we may see bright spots here and there, there's certainly a lot of great things going on in the world, generally that's the condition of this world apart from God. Spiritual darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible says, get this now, this is really interesting. Jesus came to rescue you and me from that. Wow. In fact, the little book of Jude in your New Testament, he gets very, very specific there about how that happens. It says here in verse 23 of Jude, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Snatching them out of the fire. That, that's a reference there, a direct reference to hell. And it's like God has come to save us from that, to snatch us away from it. We've got many wonderful firefighters in our church and people who work as support people with firefighters. And boy, I, I love these folks. They, what, a, what a dangerous job so many of them have. And I've listened to their stories through the years, and it's just fascinating to me to talk to a firefighter. I, I had a guy tell me not long ago, he said, Rex, there is no rush in the world like going into a burning building, your own life in danger, and to know that there are people still alive in that building, and you're literally going, and their lives are in the balance in that moment. And, and their very life may hinge on seconds, seconds, of you being able to get to them fast enough and snatch them, he said, out of the fire. I had goosebumps as he was describing it. I thought, wow, boy, that would be a job that, boy, you talk about meaningful. You talk, maybe that's why so many children say when they're little kids, boy, I want to be a fireman when I grow up, you know? Because it's obvious both to children and adults that there's a job that's important, right? Do you know what? God says, that's my mission in this world. Because I came to rescue people from a godless eternity in hell. Now, boy, that is dramatic. And here's the deal. God says, I want you to inv be involved in that with me. A great evangelist from the UK some generations ago, he had an interesting name. His name was C.T. Studd, S-U-D-D. 
S-T-U-D-D, C.T. Studd, an amazing preacher. And he was very colorful. And he made this following little statement, and he used it often in his sermons. He said, some people like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And I think that's the heart of God that compelled Christmas. He came to rescue people who were far from God and bound for destruction in hell. Now, here's, here's the good news for you if you're still exploring this thing, and maybe you're kind of window shopping. What is this all about? I would hope this would be an encouragement to you that God loves you that much. In fact, Scripture says it like this. It's one of my favorite verses, 2 Peter 3, 9. It's not God's will that any should perish. Boy, I love that. I love that verse. It's not God's will that any should perish. Wow but that all should come to repentance into a relationship with him. I love that. He loves you that much. But, but can I talk to you, if you're a Christ follower already, here's what that means for you and me. That means that God has called us to get in on that with him. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, there is no more exciting work in the world to be involved with God in his rescue mission. And can, in fact, can I, can I make a plug right now for a sermon? I'd never do this, hardly ever. I want to make a plug right now for a New Year's Eve and New Year's Day sermon party with you. That's what I want to have with you. I'm going to be preaching on New Year's Eve. It's a Saturday evening. And before all the partying goes on and everything, I want to preach to you about an exciting new year God has for us of how he wants us to represent Jesus well. And then the next day on Sunday... New Year's Day, I want to preach again and again on that same idea of how exciting it is to be involved with God in representing Jesus well in this world and being a part of this, this whole rescue mission. Now, see, here's the problem. Here, here's the problem. I guess Ted Turner put it best. I guess Ted Turner maybe put it best and summed up the spirit of the age when he said, I don't need nobody, anybody to save me. And there's the problem. Many people don't believe they need rescue. They don't understand the jeopardy that they're in and how they've been estranged from God. And I want to tell you right now before we quickly move on to our final major point, there are people in your life that you love. Now, I'm being very personal right now. It may be a spouse. It may be a child, a mom, a dad, a relative, a coworker, a neighbor. There are people in your life that right now need rescue. They do. They do. They need rescue. Many of them don't even know it. Some of them do. Some of them are good people, really. They do morally good things. Some of them are living debaucherous lives. They're all over the scale when it comes to morality. But the one thing they have in common is they still need rescue. 
And if you ever wonder, if you ever doubt, if you ever question, why, Rex, why did you come to the Capital D District 23 years ago and start a church called Grace Fellowship? Can I tell you? Because I saw hundreds of thousands of people that needed rescue. And Jesus had rescued me, and he called me to be a part of his team, just like he's calling you as a Christ follower, to be a part of that rescue. I want you to know, look at me now, that's the reason I get up every single day. Are you still looking at me? You want to know what makes my life tick? This is it. People need rescue. And we will never back off on that. We will never stop sharing the gospel. We will never stop reaching out with humanitarian aid and practical acts of love and helping people who are hurting in all kinds of ways. And we will never stop sharing the love of Jesus and the truth of his gospel. That's who we are. God loves us that much, and he's called us to love the world just like he does. Jesus came to qualify you and me, he came to rescue me, you and me, but there's one other purpose I see here in this little passage in the book of Colossians, and here it is. He came to redeem you. Paul put it like this in the text we read. He said, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's a word we don't use every day. And so I looked it up. I looked it up in the dictionary. And here's the first definition. Again, I was a little surprised. It sounded it certainly not a Christian site or anything or a Christian dictionary. It said, redemption is the action of saving from sin, error, or evil. And I said, wow, that, I'm amazed at that because that's a good biblical definition. And so I looked at a secondary definition and I jotted it down. Redemption, it said, is the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Wow. You see, the Bible says I had a debt I could not pay. And that the reason Jesus came that first Christmas was to pay the debt that I could not pay on my own. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm not sure that I've got a debt like that. I'm a pretty good person, Pastor. I don't really sin very often. Well, let me ask you, how much do you sin? I don't just ask him. Do you, do you average three times a day? I'd say it's probably more than that. I, there's no telling how many times we sin in a day, honestly. If you take sins of commission and sins of omission, all the good we could have done we failed to do, all the laws we break of God, all the bad attitudes we demonstrate, all the words that were sinful that we speak, all the, I mean, there's no telling how many times. But let's just say that you're one of the best persons on the planet and you average only three sins a day. Do the math. At the end of a year, you got over a thousand transgressions on your record just in one year. How old are you? Huh? You got over a thousand transgressions on your record. Imagine you had over a thousand parking tickets 
on your record in a year. And you go into some judge, and the judge is beside himself going, what are you doing? Can you imagine standing before a judge with over a thousand marks on your record like that? And one day we're going to stand before God, and even the best of us are going to have thousands of marks against us, thousands of sins. That's a debt we cannot pay. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of the sins that Rex Keener had committed, all those things I would never want you to know about, and they were placed on Jesus Christ, and he bore them in my place. That's what the message of Christmas is, that he paid a debt that I had no ability to pay. I deserve to die, but he died in my place. Romans 5 says, very, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he's offering to you, friend. He loves you that much. He wants to give you total forgiveness and a brand new slate. I tried to think of a way to describe the joy and the amazement, the miracle of that kind of forgiveness. And so my mind went back to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember after the upper room when the disciples went with Jesus to the garden and Jesus was praying in an agony and, and then the soldiers showed up, these armed soldiers... And Peter, boy, he was really in the moment. Peter, who had said, Lord, I'll, I'll never deny you. Even if everybody else does, in this particular moment, boy, he was there. He was ready. And he took a small sword out of his pocket, and he flailed away, and he hit the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. I think he was going for his skull, frankly. I think he wanted to split his skull. But he hit his ear, and he literally sliced his ear off. What a brutal scene it was. Blood everywhere, gross. The Bible doesn't say Jesus picked the ear up or anything like that and kind of put it back on. What it says is he rebuked Peter, and then it says that he touched the ear. He touched the place where the ear used to be. He touched where there was nothing and he made something. He restored it. One day, I think God's going to reverse that miracle on Judgment Day for those who are in Christ. Here's what I mean. All of those thousands of marks I have against me, all of those sins and transgressions written in his book, God's going to look at something, and he's going to see nothing because it'll all be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the miracle, that is the wonder of a clean slate, sins forgiven. And that's why he came. That's why he left the hails of glory in heaven for the nails of Calvary on earth. And he did that all for you, and he would have done it if you were the only one who needed it. I read a story years ago about a young family out west, and this young husband and wife were having a rough time in marriage. In fact, it was so rocky. One day, the husband awakened, and his wife was gone. There was just a note there in the bed saying she had to go. Well, first he thought about chasing after her, trying to find her, but he, then he thought, well, it has been hard, and 
She was so overwhelmed by the responsibilities of parenting and so, you know, disoriented by all the pressures of marriage. And I, maybe she needs a little space. And so he, he didn't chase after her, but he did call her that day on her cell phone and every day thereafter. And his speech was pretty much the same every time he called. He said, I love you. I need you. He said, please come home. But even though he called day after day, and often he would hear her softly weeping on the phone, she stubbornly refused to return. But as Christmas approached, he decided to become more intentional. And so he hired a private detective to go and look for his wife, who had been gone these many, many days now. And the detective stumbled across her, at a low-budget motel in a rough section of Las Vegas. And without alerting her, uh, he called the husband and let him know where she was. And so one morning, the wife is sitting on a, a, a lumpy bed, miserable, as lonely as she's ever been in her life, and she hears a knock on the door. At first it's soft, and then it gets louder, she gets up and looks through the little peak hole, and there is her husband standing in the doorway. So she frees the chain, opens the door, and falls into his arms. And he repeats the familiar speech, I love you, I need you, please come home. And this time, she resists no longer, but begins to throw the few clothes she has in the old suitcase and heads for the car. Well, days later, Christmas is over. Life is beginning to move a little more back toward normal, and he decides to have a real heart-to-heart -heart, like they've not had up to this point. And he said, why, how, why did it take you so long to return? And she said, you told me you loved me. You told me you needed me. But all of that was just words until you came to where I was. Do you know what I'm so happy about at Christmas time? That we don't serve a God who sits far away in heaven and says, I love you. I want you in my family. But doesn't do a thing about it. Jesus demonstrated his love at Christmas because he came to where we were. He moved into the neighborhood, and love so amazing, so divine as that, demands my life, my soul, my all. Don't you dare become a religious person who just goes through the motions of a quaint holiday. Understand that Christmas is about God qualifying you, God rescuing you, God redeeming you and bringing you out of the, of the dominion of darkness into his glorious light. Father, I pray for everyone today who desperately needs to be rescued. And Father, I pray that this would be a moment where they would reach out, get out of their comfort zone. Maybe they came just thinking they were going to chill out. Lord, I pray that you would draw them out They'd get out of their comfort zone and open their life to you in this very moment.
and say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for your amazing love and that you came to where we were. You didn't just talk about it. You actually moved into the neighborhood. Lord, I need you. I need to be saved. Would you just cry out to God right now, friend, if that's you? And Father, I pray for Christ followers where we need a new infusion of the meaning of Christmas. Help us to never become religious and just go through the motions. But may, may we live with the excitement, the exuberance, and the anticipation of Christmas every single day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Rex. I would like to invite the ushers forward to collect our tithes and our offerings. <laughs> 